This podcast is a Bendy Geddig Media production. Hello, I'm Michael Sheen, and you are listening to a Touchline Rant podcast. Back once again, like the Renegade Master, we're episode 132 of a Touchline Rant podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. This week, I discuss the imminent takeover of New- at Newcastle United Football Club. Um, Mitchell Gadd, our friend from Down Under, he talks us through the Players Together initiative, which is something we can all get behind. Um, and also mentions Matt Hancock, which is something that we can't get behind. Uh, Alex reads uh, an exclusive excerpt from Kevin Keegan's autobiography, something to look forward to. Jordan does a live Panini sticker packet opening. Got Got Need. Any swapsies, hit us up on social media at a touchline rant. And we are very happy to be joined by stand-up comedian Johnny Brook, who discusses in his incomparable way why he misses football so much. With all that to look forward to, I'll leave the intro here. Music. One of the biggest stories in the football world um, this past week has been the imminent takeover um, of Newcastle United by a consortium uh, headed by the Saudi Public Investment Fund, which includes the Crown Prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, and Amanda Staveley, who is seemingly intent on having uh, a stake in Newcastle United. She actually seems more intent on owning Newcastle United than Kyle Walker seems intent on ensuring sex workers get paid amid the lockdown. Um, They are due to pass the fit and proper person's test. It's being reported that it will be in the next couple of days. And it makes you wonder, it certainly made me wonder, what the fit and proper person's test actually means. Um, It's an interesting one. Because the fit and proper persons test uh, does not take into consideration letters of complaint from, let's say, Amnesty International. Now, Amnesty International have written to the Premier League to oppose this takeover. And the Premier League have declined to comment. Says a lot. Um, Let's have a look at Saudi Arabia, shall we? Saudi Arabia. This is a country that once sentenced an unmarried 23-year-old woman to a year in prison and 100 lashes for adultery. Now, what was her crime? You know, what were the the details of this adultery? Well, she was gang-raped. She fell pregnant, and then she tried to abort the fetus herself. Um, But luckily for her, and, you know, rightly so, the lashes were postponed till after the birth of the child. Also, they've previously sentenced rape victims to six months and 90 lashes for being alone in the presence of a man who was not a relative. This is what we're talking about. 
here. Now, again, let's look at the wording of the test that they have to pass. Fit and proper persons. Does this sound fit and proper to you? Have a look at uh, another aspect of, uh, of Saudi Arabia for the, the people from there. They've got one of the worst LGBT human rights records. Um, it's a country that has no criminal code. Um, their legal system is traditionally... Well, it consists of um, royal decrees and uh, the ruling of uh, Islamic um, judges and clerics. Um, so, you know, homosexuality and being transgender, they're considered immoral. Immoral, not illegal, because it's got no criminal code. It's immoral. So it's a moral judgment based on people, you know, from people who apparently are more moral. So what is, what's, what's the punishment for being homosexual or transgender in this country? Well, there's a couple of them. Um, fines, public whippings, beatings, vigilante attacks, chemical castrations, life imprisonment, capital punishment, capital punishment, and then other forms of torture. Now, again, the wording, fit and proper persons test. Newcastle United are on the verge of being taken over by a consortium backed up by the crown prince of a country who feel it is morally right to murder, and I, I will use the word murder, somebody purely for being homosexual. But they've got money, so their fit and proper test will be fine. They're allowed to buy a football club because they've got money. So that's fine. That's, that's fine. Um, money might actually be the thing that stops it. We hope hope it stops it. I genuinely... I mean, I really, really hope it stops it. However, it is sad that money may be what what stops it. And um, being sports have um, written a letter of uh, complaint to the Premier League to block the takeover um, because being sports have the rights to show the Premier League. They've paid uh, they paid four hundred million around that four hundred million to have the rights to show the Premier League. Um, but there is a Saudi-owned satellite provider called Arabsat, and it broads live Premier League matches. But it does so on a pirate channel. Um, B-O-T-Q, I believe it is pronounced. I would say forgive me if I'm wrong in pronouncing that. Um, now, they have said that it's just, you know, they have... They have I, I hasten to add that this is contested um, by these... Saudis who say that the the pirate channel is simply using their airwaves and it's um, it has also the Premier League has failed before in trying to block this and it, it was not successful um, but being sports have said and I quote it threatens future prosperity of the competition basically being sports have paid a lot of money and they're not happy because they haven't got rights to show this, the matches as they should do, because somebody else is showing them. So, and this this complaint might hold up this takeover, and it may stop it going through. 
again not the not the terrible lgbt human rights record not the the record of the the terrible record against crimes against women um the inequality that women have not the horrendous cases of rape victims being persecuted and being criminally punished uh, for being raped no but money money and it's a sad state of affairs now if you're a Newcastle United fan I don't care how much you hate Mike Ashley I don't care how much he had how much money you feel he should have put into the club I don't care how many transfers he wouldn't dip in to the you know, the available funds to to buy players with I don't care that he couldn't agree a contract extension with Rafa bloody Benitez I do not care about all of this if you're a Newcastle United fan and you aren't absolutely raging this takeover may happen there's something wrong there is something wrong you should be you should be out on the street well, you shouldn't be out on the streets right now. You should be furiously typing on Twitter. You should be opposing this. You should be writing letters to the club. You should be writing letters to the Premier League. You should be doing everything that you possibly can do to show that this is something, this is a decision and this is a takeover that you want back. And if need be, you should vote with your feet once the league is back and not go to the club. We live in a world where Cardiff City, my local team, where fans turned away from the club because the, the owners changed the shirt colour from blue to red. If that's enough to start, start a boycott, surely being owned by people from a country with this abysmal human rights record is enough to say that you won't, you won't go to the matches, you won't give them your money. I, I really hope that they do, but sadly, I... I just don't have much faith anymore in because I think that a couple of signings, Newcastle climbing the league, and I think it'll all be forgotten about, and I think it'll be accepted, and it's not right because these aren't fit and proper person people to ha own a football club. It's not fit and right that these people should be buying a club, not one of the rich history of Newcastle United. And I'll just leave you with this: What do you think Bobby Robson would make? of these owners. Do you think he would want them owning Newcastle United? Do you think he'd work with them? Do you think he'd stand by them? I'll let you answer that yourselves. What would happen if you put two children in grown men costumes in a room talking about football every week with a microphone? You're about to find out. Hello, Jordan Lloyd here. Unfortunately, there is no film club this week as haven't watched anything and therefore have nothing to comment on. However, I will be today doing a live football sticker opening for your listening pleasure. So at the start of lockdown, I purchased the official Premier League sticker album, which is called Football 2020. I'm not mad on the name, um, but hey-ho, the sticker book has all 20 Premier League squads, plus a few extra little bonus pages. There are 635 stickers to collect. I currently have 427 stickers, meaning there's only 208 to go. Um, I am now at that horrible stage where 
pretty much everything I open is a swap and I am starting to resent players. It all started with fun opening of packs and looking at all their smiley faces. Now it is just pure frustration. Just last week, I physically shouted at a picture of Dejan Lovren. Um, at this point in time, my arch nemesis are Steve Cook, Joe Hart and Ravel Morrison. Um, I'm quite close to finishing Man City, Liverpool and United. Um, also as well, in the middle of the book, there is a Cadbury's Premier League Legends page. So if you hear me open a Shea Given or an Ian Wright, don't be alarmed. I have bought the correct stickers. What I'm going to do is I am going to open the pack, but face down. I'm going to cover the corresponding sticker numbers and flip them over one by one to reveal the player to both myself and you. I'll also chuck in a little fact about them, which actually appears on the back of the sticker. So here we go. There's only five stickers in a pack these days, which when I was younger, doing criminal. 70 pence as well, but there we go. So the first sticker to reveal is Premier League trophy, number one, but I've got it. Premier League trophy is 104 centimetres tall and weighs 25.4 kilograms. The body is solid sterling silver, while the base is a semi-green precious stone, which represents the field of play. Bad start. We've got him. Next one. Oh, Dejan Lovren again. 289. I knew that. Footy facts. Dejan Lovren is good friends with Mo Salah off the pitch. They love to make fun of each other on social media. There's not even a, good, a football fact about Lovren. It tells you about his mate. Next one, number three. James Chester, Aston Villa. I think I've got him as well. He's a nightmare start. Yeah, there he is. Footy facts. Dean Smith successfully guided Villa back to the Premier League, breaking a 109-year club record in the process as they achieved 10 successive victories in 10 matches. Not even about James Chester, that. General Villa. Poor bugger. Number four. Come on. Three swaps so far. Dan Byrne. Don't recognise Dan Byrne of Brighton. Uh, we don't have him. We need Dan Byrne. Fantastic. Welcome, Dan Byrne. Dan Byrne made his debut for the Seagulls in an FA Cup third round tie against West Bromwich Albion, giving a man of the match performance. Absolutely positive. Last one of this pack. 400. Oh, Bramall Lane. It's a picture of Bramall Lane. Sheffield United. Uh, oh, I don't have it. Lovely stuff. Got to be a good fact on here. Bramall Lane is steeped in history. The meeting which founded the club in March 1889 was held at the offices of Bramall Lane Ground Committee. Hmm. First pack needed two, three swaps and another Dejan Lovren. If anybody's after any Dejan Lovren stickers, please let me know. And I'm going to open the second packet and hope for better. Here we go. Will Hughes. Already have Will Hughes. So I have to now hate him. Yeah, got him. Putty facts. 
What are the cues like to have an energy drink and look through the program before a game? A bit like fans. <laughs> Brilliant. Next one. Oh, Robert Snodgrass. Lovely grin on Robert Snodgrass. I wonder if we have Snodgrass. No, we don't get in there. So Robert Snodgrass is fine form for his club, so a recall to the Scotland squad for the first time in a year in September 2018. In all fairness, I reckon I could get in that Scotland squad. Next one. Oh, it's Joe Hart again. Only Joe Hart today. In 1860... It's not even about Joe Hart. I'm only going to carry on reading it. It's about Turf Moor. Next one. Granite Xhaka. Shiny one. I think I've already got this one because I was going to send it. Skinner. Yeah, got it. You can have two. Last one of this pack is, oh, it's a little sticker of Liverpool football team. But with only Robertson, Mane and the Ox on the front. And it goes on this locations. Oh, I've got it. Goodness sakes. Liverpool played their first ever football league game against Middlesbrough Ionopolis in September 1893. Lovely fact. So, ladies and gentlemen, out of 10 stickers open, I only needed three and I have seven swaps. Um, I shall be opening more soon. Hope you enjoyed that. I'm not even sure I'm enjoying this anymore. It's costing me money. Um, if anybody is also collecting the sticker books and would like to do some swaps with me, please get in touch. For now, goodbye. Hi, this is the Blender Coach, and you're listening to a Touchline Rants latest podcast. Back of the net. Oh, I do miss football so ridiculously much. Um... I miss being ragingly angry every week at the fact that VAR, as a solution to a problem, is like pouring bottled water on a chip pan fire. It's taken something that was massively damaged and somehow made it unbelievably worse and is a massive pain and an absolute catastrophe of how they've done it, but... Weekends and match days without it. It's weird. I've kind of just got a, a hole that only that shitbag's ineptness can fill, to be honest. Um, I really miss being ragingly jealous at how good De Bruyne is for City because that man can just make football do things that mortals can't and he seems to be able to do it with the absolute nonchalance of um, a wizard. It's just not humanly natural um, to be as good as he is and I both love and hate him for that The little weird forever 11 year old looking sort of fake ginger bastard. Um, I'm even missing like that weird panic that I get from being a Man United fan in Yorkshire and Leeds after so many years in the abyss with every round of fixtures just nudging that bit closer to promotion because even in these isolation times, their fans would find some way of 
being in my eye line to make sure that I absolutely knew they were finally back in the big time man. No, I um I don't have the social tolerance for that. It's just not gonna work for me. Um oh, it just it it proper bothers me as well that everyone like proper loves Chris Kamara and the work he does on Soccer Saturday and I say this as someone who's quite poor at his job. Seeing someone who is so out of his depth and abysmal as he is at his and yet beloved for it winds me up because that's what I do. That's my speciality and Kamara is taking that crown on a national level and as an only child that winds me up. But I'm an only child, everything winds me up obviously. Um... I miss Laurel's predictions. Um, I miss him because for all the years he's done this, it it never changes. Every single fixture where it's like two top four sides against each other or a local derby or anything that would be like a money fixture on Sky or BT, guaranteed that Coward will pick it as a one-all draw every single time. Madness. Absolute madness. Um, I miss watching Brandon Williams play at United with that beautiful mix of violence and intelligence like a proper old-fashioned fullback that had no issue whatsoever absolutely kicking the marrow out of your bones but he does it in such a an applied way that you know the boy's just going to grow up into something truly special um i miss super sundays and watching graham soonest rage to the point of an aneurysm at anything that pogba does or doesn't do it's just ridiculous. Um, I miss how depressed I get myself by how utterly ridiculously poor I am at fantasy football. Somebody could have scored eight in six games. I put them in and they will not score for two months. This is guaranteed. I've ruined more careers than cruciate ligament injuries. It's just ridiculous. Um I just miss football. It's it's that it's that sport that just means more when it's right and more pain when it's not and more joy of anticipation of just your imagination running off in weird tangents of what can be achieved by this sport like nothing else does. I'm missing, I can call it a resurgent United because under Ole for these last few games of the season before the pandemic kicked in, they were resurgent. They could suddenly defend, they could suddenly attack. They added Bruno Fernandes and he added things that are beyond my ability to describe. There's something about the aura of a special, special player that just adds so much value to everyone around him and he's done that and I miss seeing my boys, just the guys who 
had been absent for years and years and years and offered no real soul or personality, it's returning to a club that I have loved for like 30 odd years and just at that point where it felt like something was coming to the boil, it's been turned off. So I just, I need, I need that fix. I need that match day buzz of hoping that somehow against all hope, despite the absolute attritional stuff we served up with, absolute piffle up to losing, say, 2-0 at home to Burnley. All the season had gone, and now it's there. It's in our hands just to sort of really push on and at least get a top-four spot, qualification for something major and a platform to get out in the summer, spend some big cash, bring some additional talent in and give me more things to be ragingly optimistic about. So, yeah, I need it. Massively, it is. Um, it's a bit of a life purpose, that isn't it. But yeah, I've been Johnny Brook. Cheers for listening. See you later. Bye. So the main thing about this page is, whoever's written this page about this player has clearly got a vendetta, because there is nothing positive about it. Bear in mind, this person played four hundred and fifty-eight competitive games. And there is not a single nice word to be said about him. Opening paragraph. Opening paragraph for your life as a professional. They stick this in. This player was relegated from the Premier League five times. A record he holds jointly with Herman Horiderson. Hello one and all. Mitch here. Uh, this week... On this lovely podcast, I'm going to talk about something which has been kicking around the news for a few weeks now. Um, and it's a very political subject, just to warn you all before we delve into it. It's the, um, it's the players together story, um, but not necessarily just the players together story. Actually, the whole saga, if you will, uh, of the initiative, how it came about, um, and also... Um, the focus from the government and Matt Hancock in particular, the health secretary, on players stepping up, as he said, um, you know, um, doing something to support the NHS by taking a pay cut and playing their part, he said. So this was a few weeks ago now, and um, Miss Hancock was asked a question in the daily briefings where he... He said uh, he was asked about um, about you know contributions from wealthy people like Premier League footballers, and he's since gone on to defend the fact that actually he was he was asked the question and answered it, um, which I, I think is a slightly strange defence because, given how I guess media trained and savvy and prepared government ministers usually are. Um, for this type of thing and for getting across a point um, by potentially repeating it multiple times. To be dragged into that, I'm pretty sure he knew exactly what he was doing and it wasn't... uh, It didn't veer him away from necessarily an area that he wanted to talk about. I think he pretty much um, knew full well that um, this would lay down 
the lay down a marker, if you will. And a lot was said um, by people saying, uh, by people in the media around whether this was right to do. Um, and I think, I think given now we're in a position a few weeks on where the Players Together initiative has been set up, um, you, know, you have to say that um, from, from my point of view, there, there's a lot of billionaires, business moguls, people in this, uh, in this world who you could quite easily ask to dip their hand into the po- into their pockets, and it seemed rather strange to single out footballers. Uh, or if he was going to do that, then I felt that at the very least add them to a list of a few. Um, whether they be entertainers or from the business world or whatever, but it just felt strange then that in the coming in the ensuing sort of media interviews and briefings and so on afterwards that not once did really Hancock actually put the pressure on other areas. You could say that actually the end justified the means and maybe putting that pressure on. We'll never know if it led to players together. The um, the talk was that this was in the works already, but we'll we'll never I think we'll never truly know. Um, but it just it just seems to me that maybe yeah maybe Matt Hancock got what he wanted all along, but it just felt rather strange that it was just footballers signalled out, and I thought very unfairly um, by the health secretary. Uh, I think. What I would say as well, around the whole debate of whether this was, um, this came about, this initiative from the Secretary's comments, uh, these things take time. You know, these things take time. Initiatives like this take time. Um, getting around a table virtually, um, it's hard enough when there isn't a lockdown, but actually, you know, uh, trying to organise something like this, I don't think it would have been easy. And I do, I must say, you know, and this is just a, an opinion, um, that actually, you know, I, I do think that there's probably a lot of truth in the fact that something was in the works before the health secretary um, made his his plea, if you will, to the footballers of this world. And... You know, I have faith that there was something, and I did something on this podcast a few weeks ago about the generosity of some players, the good news. And footballers are human, and they're, they're, you know, they're always going to be, you know, people that you could say are greedy and selfish, but there are also great examples of footballers out there that are doing wonderful things as we focus on in this show. We try and be positive and shine a a light on that rather than be negative. And I genuinely believe that the footballers wanted to do something and that something like this would have happened whether the health secretary said something or not. Like I said, we'll never really know to what degree it forced their hand or not. But the good news is that the Players um, Together initiative is now up and running and um, and it, it did make its first... Uh, first donation of four million for the NHS on its launch a couple of days ago and um, it'll be interesting to see what else uh, 
um, how much and uh, how it, it sort of actually operates and unfolds. Um, but but certainly, I think it's a very positive thing, and I think the it's been a bit conspicuous that after the launch of Players Together, that the health secretary hasn't um, then turned his attention or his crosshairs on other areas like, you know, um, business tycoons, whether it's Branson's or Ashley's or whomever you want to say, Philip Green, whatever, um, insert, insert wealthy person here, or, you know, whether it's other entertainment um, industries, a sport is very much an entertainment industry. So um, I think that's been quite conspicuous. And I do think that um, that the health secretary probably, although going back to what he said originally, he was asked a question and he answered it. I think he answered it for a reason. He could have easily done the minister thing of avoid it and focused on another key message or whatever it might be. But I think he knew full well that he... Um, wanted to put some pressure on there and hey you know he's got what he wanted but I'd like to think that um, that we should put some um, some faith and some praise in the footballers and Jordan Henderson who um, started the the kind of ball rolling for it and the captains of the Premier League clubs who are involved in this so um, an interesting one um, it'll be good to see um, whether there'll be any legacy after this, whether the Players Together initiative will remain as an initiative after uh, the coronavirus situation and whether it will go on to support other causes or not, who knows. But I think it's great that it's been set up, credit to the players and um, yeah, I think it's an interesting topic uh, to focus on this week. Cheers all. Hi, please let the NHS do their work. In other words, stay the fuck home and don't go anywhere. You kill me, I won't be best pleased. Football post a Parker Little Football Post a Parker Little Welcome to Football Post-Apocalypto. This is the place where we ask, what could football and the entire sporting landscape look like in 25 years' time? The football landscape has been shifted. Pray silence, please, for Football Post-Apocalypto. This week on Football Post-Apocalypto, we rewind back to 1997. We delve into the archives with a stunning autobiography from none other than Kevin Keegan. His autobiography is called My Autobiography, and the blurb at the beginning reads, Kevin Keegan stunned the footballing world in January 97, where he resigned as manager of Newcastle United only weeks before the 200 million flotation of a club that had almost gone bust before his arrival. After guiding the Magpies from a near extinction to the brink of the Premiership title, 
His true achievement only became clear with the mourning which engulfed Tyneside in the days following his departure. To the fans, Keegan was Newcastle. Yet Keegan's love for the game remained and despite the years of luxurious bracket exile, close bracket, he remained close to his heart of, the, of his public, creating an immaculate impact upon his messiah return to manage Newcastle in 92. He saved the club from relegation. St James's Park was rebuilt and filled to the rafters every home game with the financial backing of Chairman Sir John Hall and players of the, the calibre of Sir Peter Beardsley, Andy Cole, Robert Lee, Deva Ginola, Les Ferdinand and David Batty. Keegan built Newcastle into simply the most exciting force in English football, a team with the qualities of speed, movement and attacking flair brilliantly orchestrated by his tactical vision and managerial ambitions. These ambitions were confirmed with the 15 million signing of Alan Shearer, but then as suddenly as Keegan arrived, he had gone. We delve into a chapter, which is chapter 16 called Mystic Kev, and where I'm about to read an excerpt uh, where he is just uh, getting to grips with his thoughts, really wondering what will happen in the future. The future of the game is something I care deeply about. And on balance, I think making our game even better is a question of a little fine-tuning rather than a radical overhaul. But of course, nowadays, I'm monitoring all from the outside, looking in. For the first time ever, I'm working for myself rather than for someone else, and I'm loving every minute of it. When I quit football, I'll be able to turn my full attention to my soccer citrus project, <laughs> which, although it was already patented, had been under wraps for five years. It is something you will be hearing about in the very near future. That is the, sorry, <clears throat> soccer Cyrus project, Soccer Cyrus project, which we heard about in the future, said no one. It would take a pretty major development in my life to consign the project to the back burner again. Now that I've got so far, I'd like to see it through this time. However, if I were offered the chance to manage England, that would certainly take precedence. Just backing himself up there. Um, but it is rare for this that sort of opportunity to come along twice. I'm sure my critics would say that England under Keegan, third person, would be exciting to watch, but wouldn't win anything. I guess that label has now become attached to me. I wouldn't, I think, be tempted back into management by any anyone other than England. Hang on, does that? I guess that label has now become attached to me. I wouldn't, I think. Be tempted, I, th I think, be tempted back into management. That's what it says in the book. Ugh, this is a mess. Be tempted into management by anyone other than England. I'm in control of my own life now, and I like that. If someone rings up and asks me to dinner, <laughs> dinner in Maidenhead, I can say yes or no. If I was asked to cover a football match for ITV or travel to China to coach their youngsters, I could do it. That to me is real wealth. I had a tremendous contract at Newcastle which gave me material reward, but the quality of your life is another matter altogether. 
I enjoy my connection with football, but I don't want to be involved into the day-to-day intensity of managing a club, club team any longer. You cannot sustain that sort of management style indefinitely. When we went to Newcastle, I told Terry McDermott that we were like doctors with a sick patient we had to cure. I relish that part of of my job there. And if a club in a similar position asked me to come in for three months so to put things right as sort of a flying doctor, perhaps I would be interested. That sort of brief encounter could inspire my enthusiasm. My horses have now been a hobby so far, but as we expand, they are becoming more of a commercial enterprise. I have over 20 now. They are something the whole family loves and can share, an interest which brings us all together, which is great. Both my daughters ride well. Jean, wife, adores horses and I love racing them. I have recently invested 50 grand in a 17-year-old stallion named Aragon which I have based on Bob Urquhart's stud at High Huntsley, near Hull. I don't know whether it'll turn out to be commercially viable, but at least it'll give me a wealth of experience, which will stand me in good stead as I get to grips with the racing business. As far as breeding goes, <laughs> as far as breeding goes we'll still, we're still in our infancy, establishing our bloodlines and deciding what horses we want to keep and where we want to go. The big crunch now for Jean, wife, is she can't bear to part with any horses, whereas I get as much pleasure out of selling horses as I do out of breeding it. Just just as I did buying and selling footballers. (laughs) As for the future, I'm not much of a crystal ball gazer and my long-term ambitions will probably evolve over over the years as other opportunities present themselves. The famous Len Shackleton, who played for Sunderland, had a chapter in his autobiography titled What the Directors Know About Football. All the pages were blank. The chapter I would leave blank would be my future. That does not mean that there's nothing's going to happen. Simply needs filling as I go along. That's sort of how life works. That is exciting, and it beckons me to follow a path without having to know where it's leading. I'd like to take something incredible to put it back into football, and there is not much left in the game now that fits that description. Newcastle was incredible, and it was easy to forget where where they were when I joined them now, but they're a major club competing with the best. But to my knowledge, there is not another Newcastle United out there. In 92, Sir John Hall told me, that he and I were the only two people who could save Newcastle, and he was right, we did save it. Ironically, now both of us have gone. In September 97, Sir John announced that he would be retiring as chairman at the end of the year. Life moves on. It is one thing to save a football club and the other to take it to bigger and better things. Now, new shoulders on that responsibility rests, but Sir John will retain his connection with Newcastle United and the club and the team will be scoring goals in front of the Sir John Hall stand. This is no less than Sir John deserves for his vital part he played in Newcastle's success story. He will stay in touch through his son Douglas, who is vice chairman, and of course, you'll have a lot of great memories. Writing this book has meant reliving my life, all in its spectacular highs and the occasional inevitable lows. 
that has been a fascinating experience because everything has happened at such a pace and because I have never been inclined to look backwards, it's probably the first time I've ever sat back and taken stock as a complete picture. I've eaten with kings. I've sat down to chat with people who literally have nothing. I've rubbed shoulders with people who are successful in completely different spheres. I count that as a privilege because I recognize that such a broad experience is available only to a few. Sometimes I'm asked whether there is a life after football. I look at it this way. Imagine an ex-footballer going into a job centre. What sort of job are you after, he's asking. The guy thinks for a moment. Well, he replies, I want something along the lines of my last job. I want to start around 9.30 and finish no later than 1.15. I want lots of leisure, a cracking wage, good bonuses, a car. And I want to travel first class, stay in the best hotels, meet interesting people and want everything taken care of for me. My boots cleaned and my travel arrangement made, so for me, I don't have to worry about things like remembering my passport. And pigs might fly. The answer, the answer is football cannot be replaced, but it always comes to an end. And all too quickly. It is while you're at the top that you should be building towards that time learning from others and taking advantage of those opportunities you have to gain experience of different businesses. I live in another world now and I enjoy it immensely, but on their own, none of my many enthusiasms, golf, football, management, horses, will ever be as real a substitute for me than the thrill of playing the game. Kevin Keegan, third person. Kevin Keegan is very much alive but no longer kicking. And that is a section from Kevin Keegan's autobiography named My Autobiography. The last chapter, chapter 16, called Mystic Kev, where his ponderings about where the future is going to be. So that is football post-apocalypto. Hi, I'm Richard Gadsman. And if you don't listen to the Touchline Rant podcast, he's going to be very, very annoyed. Okay? (laughs) There you go. We've come to the end of another episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Um, Thank you once again to our producers, Bendy Geddig Media, who are helping us to get out uh, episodes to you each and every week. Thank you once again. And don't forget to follow us on social media at a touchline rant everywhere you get your media socially. We hope you're all doing well. Hope you're all staying at home and being sensible. Hope you're all healthy and happy and let's uh let's get through it. And we'll see you next week. Bye. The podcast you have just listened to is brought to you by Anchor. This is the only place to get all your podcast needs. If you want a warm, fuzzy podcast from all them people, then you ought to listen to the podcast via Anchor. It's the only place to get all that podcast juiciness and stuff. Thank you, y'all.